Peter in the Gospels. Uh, when I get back to it in, later in July, we will jump to Peter in the book of Acts. Got about four or five Sundays there. And then we'll jump to the letters that Peter wrote uh, as we get into the school year. So I'm excited to be able to share some of that with you. Um, today, a little different. We're stepping away from that series I shared with you last week. Uh, because of the Supreme Court ruling recently on the Roe v. Wade, um, I decided that I just wanted to speak to the issue of abortion to make sure that we are all biblically informed. Uh, that we have an opportunity to reflect on this issue from a Christian perspective, from God's perspective. Um, and how, how should we respond to those that oppose God's view of this issue? And so uh, we'll dive into some of that today. Our scripture comes from Psalm chapter 139. I'm sorry, before we get to the scripture, I wanted to show you one quick slide. Um, this is a slide uh, that shows where the states land right now presently with regard to the issue of abortion. You can see the states in blue are the states that where abortion is legal today. You can see the states in red. Those are the states that had trigger laws where if Roe v. Wade was ever um, uh, uh, overturned, that immediately abortion would become illegal in those states. And then you see other states, like Georgia is one of them, where it is likely that laws will be passed to make abortion limited or illegal in some, uh, some manner or another. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. Again, our text comes from Psalm 139, and our, our aim is not to, for me to be political today. Our aim is to know what the Bible has to say, what God thinks. I mean, every week we stand up for the reading of God's Word because we want to know what God thinks. We're a people of God's Word, and so that's what we're looking to discover today is what does God think on this issue, and what God thinks on this issue um, overrides any other opinions that may be out there in culture or in our world. Um, our text for today, I'm going to say it for the fourth time, Psalm 139. If you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 139, we'll be reading verses 13 through 16. This is the psalmist David writing. He writes, beginning at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so let's take a look at those verses together. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13. David writes, For you, God, formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together. And here comes the key phrase, In my mother's womb. The perspective of the Bible when it comes to when life begins is that life begins at conception. David is talking about his pre-born state here. He's talking about himself before he came out of his mother's womb, and he is saying that he was a viable person. God does not regard the unborn as an it. God does not regard the unborn as a tumor. David sees himself in his mother's womb as a person. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, Jeremiah, the great prophet of God, agrees with David's perspective. He writes, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I, God, formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah, and before you were born, I consecrated you. So here the Bible communicates that God had plans for Jeremiah's life even before he took his first breath in this world. He says, God knew me, God consecrated me. What that means is that when sperm and egg unite, a new soul, a living human being, has been formed. What that means is that every aborted baby, every miscarried baby, that even though they never took a breath in this earth, 
they are breathing and living as souls in heaven. The Apostle Paul shares this perspective. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, he writes, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. In other words, Paul sees the hand of God already moving in his life even before he's entered into this world. Finally, in Luke's gospel, Luke records a meeting between two pregnant mothers, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, who would be the mother of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 and verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth, who had John the Baptist in her womb, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped in her womb. Verse 44, She said to Mary, When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, as these two babies were coming together, as these two moms were coming together, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Friends, tumors do not experience joy. That's the Bible's perspective there. People experience joy. Again, the opinion of the Bible is that life begins at conception. So that's the biblical perspective on this issue. But what about a scientific perspective on this issue? What does science have to say about this issue? Well, embryologists Moore and Persaud, and I've got a quote here for you, write these words. The zygote, referring to the baby in the womb, is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete to form a single-celled zygote. Now, just to be clear, again, a zygote refers to a human being in their pre-born state. That is, in the earliest stages of human development. Just like a toddler refers to a human being at a certain stage in development. And an infant refers to a human being in a certain stage of development. A zygote, or a fetus, is a human being at a certain stage in human development. That's what the science textbooks say. Here's another quote from the field of embryology. This is from David Boonin. Now, what's interesting about this quote is that this guy is a pro-choice abortion advocate. Even he agrees that human life begins at conception. He writes, A human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development. So let's think about this for a moment. Each one of us, you and me, at one time, were a zygote. Just like each one of us was an infant. Just like each one of us was at one time a toddler. Um, These are just different stages of a human being in their development. We did not become a human being when we were born. Rather, we became a human being when sperm and egg met, just like we were once teenagers or toddlers. At one time, we were all zygotes. So when a pregnant woman gets pregnant, there is a new human body developing inside of her. Again, this is what science tells us. Let me share with you a couple more quotes. This is from Peter Singer. He's an ethicist at Princeton University. And just like with uh, Mr. Boonin, or Dr. Boonin, this fella supports abortion on demand. He supports infanticide, in fact, as well. Dr. Singer writes, There is no doubt that from the first moment of conception, a human conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. In other words, pro-abortion advocates even admit, just in a moment of objectivity, in a moment of honesty, that what is forming in a woman's womb is a whole human being. Um, One other quote from Bernard Nathanson. He's co-founder of one of the largest abortion advocacy groups in the world, and he writes, There is simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All of its genetic coding and features are indisputably human. As to being, there is no doubt that what exists is alive, is self-directed, and is not the same being as the mother. End of quote. 
Do you see what these folks are saying? They are agreeing with the Bible that life begins at conception. Even people that are opposed to uh, limiting abortions. These are people who are pro-choice, and yet even they agree that uh, what is in the mother's womb is not an it or a tumor. Rather, it is a whole living human being. All right, let's summarize. The view of the Bible is that life begins at conception. The view of science, even pro-abortion ethicists and embryologists agree that life begins at conception. And so with all of that information, armed with all that information, uh, we want to pause here for a moment and ask the question, well, if that's the case, if that's the way God sees it, if that's the way science sees it, even people who would oppose some sort of limitations on abortion, then what difference does all this make to my life? How does this impact where I'm living? I'm not pregnant. I don't know anybody who's pregnant. So what difference does this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, if what is in the mother's womb is a living, whole human being, what that means is that abortion is killing. Abortion is killing. Abortion is not a medical procedure. It is not the removal of a clump of cells. Rather, abortion is the termination of an innocent human life. Abortion is killing. And we know what the Bible has to say about that. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, commandment number 6 says, You shall not murder. The taking of innocent human life is expressly prohibited in the Bible, and it's regarded as sin. And for this reason alone, abortion should be opposed by followers of Christ. You say, okay, Gordon, I see what you're saying, but I got a couple of questions for you. What about if there's a situation where a woman becomes pregnant and rape or incest is how that pregnancy came about? Um, in other words, are there exceptions to the rule? Are there times when circumstances are so severe or so traumatic that uh, special consideration should be given? Well, that's a great question, and this issue is what Georgia's heartbeat bill attempts to answer. In the state of Georgia, under the heartbeat bill, which is, by the way, still hung up in the courts, um, it's sitting in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals right now. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, um, it will be released and it will be, become law in this land. But under Georgia's heartbeat bill, the state does allow exceptions in the case of rape and exceptions in the case of incest and exceptions where the mother's life is at risk. Um, let me say this at the front end. When in dealing with this issue, typically, where rape or incest are the means by which somebody becomes pregnant, um, almost, actually almost never results in a, in a pregnancy because of the trauma that is involved. So the issue virtually eliminates itself. Let me say that again. Where those two considerations are at play, typically pregnancy does not result because of the trauma involved, so the issue virtually eliminates itself. However, should a pregnancy result from one of those scenarios, or for instance, if the mother's life is in danger, which again is almost never the case with modern medicine, should there be exceptions? Here's a few things for us to consider. While the trauma of one of these scenarios is unspeakable and unimaginable, the question we should always come back to is, is the baby in the mother's womb a person? Is the baby in the mother's womb a person? And if that baby is a living, whole human being, then the termination of that life would be killing. Is it right to punish the unborn child for the sins of the father? One scripture that comes to mind when considering difficult situations like these is Romans chapter 8, and verse 28. It reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God promises to work through all things 
even evil things, for the good of those who love him. Those are some things for us to think about as we approach the issue of exceptions. And please know that exceptions can easily become a loophole for women seeking an abortion. She could walk into a clinic and say, this is how I got pregnant. And then the procedure would take place. Again, those are some things for us to think about. You say, okay, Gordon, I hear what you're saying, but I've got another question. And that is, what about a woman's right to choose? Should the government be involved in that issue at all? I mean, it seems to me like, and you've heard people say this, and perhaps you've thought this yourself as well, should the government be involved in trying to legislate morality? Um, should they just leave it alone and let people make their own decisions? Well, that's a great question. Flip over to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The Bible just said that the authority that is over us from our government has been instituted by God. The Bible teaches that this is also for our own good and that that government exists under God's authority to promote good for all of its people. What that verse tells us is that the government not only has the God-given right but also the responsibility to legislate morality. This is part of the purpose of government. In other words, the state should say that things like stealing and lying and murder and a host of other things are wrong and are punishable by our laws. And that the state should criminalize and punish wrongdoers. This is the foundational purpose of government according to the Bible. Government imposes morality on people every day and this is a good thing the Bible says. Taking away people's right to choose immoral acts is absolutely the role of government. Again, Paul writes in verse 4, For the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For the government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, we would all agree that if the government allowed people to steal, that this would be a bad thing. We would all agree that if the government allowed people to drive on the sidewalk, that this would be a bad thing and that people who drive on the sidewalk should be apprehended and should, be fa or should face consequences. The point is, it is good that the government has made laws prohibiting those kinds of actions. It is part of the government's role, their purpose, to take away people's right to choose immoral acts. Where we are not talking about whether or not I get to go out and eat Mexican or Chinese for dinner. That's not what's at issue here. We're talking about people who are making decisions to commit immoral acts that do not allow us to live in a just and civil society. It is part of the government's role to step in and punish the wrongdoer and say these things are wrong. We cannot allow this. We are not pro-choice about burglary. We are not pro-choice about rape or kidnapping children. So why would we be pro-choice about killing them? Again, something for us to think about. Now, I'd like to flip back to that map that I showed you at the beginning um, that shows kind of where the country uh, is, uh, state by state, on this issue uh, right now in the present. And uh, what you don't see on that map is a caption across the bottom. And the caption reads, Our Divided Nation. Our Divided Nation. Now, we would be foolish to think that abortion is the issue on which Americans are divided. It is not the issue. It's an issue about which Americans are divided, but it's not, certainly not the issue. However, um, I do think that it is very revealing looking at that map. Because after reading the Bible, 
and learning what God thinks and then hearing from science and knowing what science reveals on the subject, people are still entrenched in wanting abortion legalized. So you've got these two voices, prominent voices, should be prominent voices in our culture, saying, no, 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 this is wrong. And yet, the culture still wants this. What that tells me is one of two things. Number one, it tells me the, that Americans have a low regard for what God thinks. The Bible holds very little sway over their opinions. That many Americans these days, even Christians, are not looking to the Bible to shape their perspectives and opinions. The biblical perspective on this issue is very clear. And so, number one, what that tells me is that the biblical standard for morality and shaping what America thinks is fading in its prominence. Number two, the second thing that this divided map reveals is that Americans are unable to objectively think, at least on some issues, outside of their political party affiliations. Let me say that again. What this map reveals is that Americans are struggling to think objectively and honestly on issues that are, um, that are connect, closely connected to their political party affiliations. And that's unfortunate. Even if someone has a low regard for the Bible, can they not listen to embryologists who confirm that, look, what is growing in that mother's womb is a living, whole human being? It appears that political party loyalty overrides objective thinking, and again, that is unfortunate. A question for you and I is, how do we engage a world? How do we engage a world that is unable to have an objective conversation about politically charged issues? In other words, how do we break through and help people see things from God's perspective? Well, here's what Jesus says to do. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the subject of judging others. He says in verse 1, um, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, Terry in his Sunday school class asked this question a lot. He says, what did you just hear? So what did you just hear? Jesus says, judge not lest you be not judged. A lot of people say, well, Jesus just said that we shouldn't judge anybody, that we shouldn't condemn anybody, that we shouldn't point out to anybody that what they're doing is wrong. Friends, if that's how we view that scripture, then we missed what Jesus is saying there. Um, that scripture is not about not making judgments about other people. Rather, that statement is a warning. It is a warning that if and when you do make judgments, know that the same measure that you use to judge other people will fall back on you. Hear the warning, judge not, lest you also be judged. And then he goes and gives some more particulars about this. Um, again, it's not a prohibition against judging others. It's a warning that when you do judge others, it will come back to you the same measure. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? So Jesus says, verse 5, point number 1 is, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is not a prohibition against making judgments about seeing what's going on in somebody's life and saying, this is what's happening here. Rather, it is a warning, a teaching, about how to engage in a conversation or in a judgment like that in the right way. The first thing we do is we take an inside look, hard look at the inside of ourselves, um, and we make sure that we are not being hypocrit hypocritical in what we are saying. We make sure that our lives, first of all, are up to speed because in judging the other person, we could be condemning ourselves. Number two, 
How do we address those who oppose God's perspective? Verse 6, Jesus says, here is some advice. Here's the advice. Be careful. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus says, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, at one of my girls' swim meets. It was a home swim meet. One of the folks, uh, one of the local swim clubs here in, in, the, in, uh, in Watkinsville. And uh, I happened to be the announcer for the event. So the last couple of years, I've been the guy who's in the microphone telling people where to go and when they need to be there and what events, what's in the pool and what's coming up next. And anyhow, all that sort of stuff, as well as calling out the event, the starts of the race. And so, and, you know, swimmers step up, take your mark, and then hitting the little button and sending them out in the pool. So, and Claire's there helping me with all this stuff. There's a lot of things going on. Well, one of the things that we have done traditionally, as far as I, we've been a part of this swim club for I don't know, 10 years or so, as long as my girls have been swimming. And one of the things that goes back in the tradition of this particular swim club is that we always pray at the start of the meet, and we always pledge the flag at the start of the meet. And so we've done that this year. Um, every single home meet, I always call on somebody to come and uh, give the prayer beforehand. And so I called on one of the young men uh, who was one of our swimmers. He was going to be a junior in high school, and I, I knew he was up to the task, and I had been coaching him up for about five minutes leading up to the start of the whole event, and he was going to have our prayer. And somebody came walking up to me and said, I would like to give the prayer today. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know who this was. I didn't, hadn't had a conversation with them about this. And so I was just kind of a little bit like, well, that's, that's a little odd request. Um, but okay, let's talk about that for a second. And she said, well, I've, I've talked to the lady who heads up uh, this whole swim meet, and she said that I could give the prayer today. Well, come to find out, she had just asked the lady, and then walked over to me five seconds later and said, she, the, anyhow, that's the, neither here nor there. But, um, so I was kind of standing there having a conversation, and I said to her, I mean, we're like minutes away from getting ready to get started, and I said, well, I've already got this guy, this young guy here, and, and he's planning on praying, and we've been coaching him up, and he's getting ready to do this, and so I really am thinking that he's going to be the one that's going to pray today, and so she kind of let the cat out the bag and, and share with me that she wanted to actually have a moment of silence. She didn't want to have a Christian prayer. And so I thought, well, that's really not who we are. That's not our culture. That's not what we do around here. And so um, I just told her no. Uh, that didn't go real well. Um, and so, you know, we had a little bit of a, uh, I guess, a back and forth debate about that issue. But eventually I just had to say no, and uh, we're just not, we're not doing that. And so the young man, when it came time to pray, he prayed the prayer, and it went along just fine. About halfway through the meet, we get to our little timeout, little mid-section mid where we change out the volunteers and that sort of stuff. And it's like about a little five-minute intermission, if you would. And so this young person came walking behind me, and I stopped her and just said, Hey, I just want to apologize. I, I was, didn't know that that request was out there. It kind of caught me off guard. I, I, I hope that everything's okay. And she had a few not very kind words and tried to really engage in with me a debate right there again on the spot. And I just got the sense that um, this is one of these moments where I'm talking to somebody who doesn't want to actually debate the merits of the issue, but just wants to yell and scream and just wants to put me in my place. And so I shared the line that I've probably shared with some of you, which my girls know very well. I'm sorry you feel that way. Again, that didn't go over real well, 
But <laughs> nevertheless, um, uh, we just, we just kind of moved on with life. Um, you know, the issue for us, when we are engaging with someone who opposes the biblical perspective of abortion, or whatever the biblical perspective happens to be, whatever the issue is, we have to assess, is this going to be a fruitful conversation? I mean, is this somebody who's trying to do like Aristotle and just debate me by putting me down, like attack the, attack the messenger rather than actually debate the merits of the issue? Is this someone who is genuinely wants to have a conversation and debate the issue, or is this just someone who wants to yell and scream and put me in my place? And if so, then I am just casting my pearls before swine. And Jesus, I should take his advice, and I should just say nothing at all.